1: from KQED.
0: Hey there, everybody from KQED Public Radio. This is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer.
1: And I'm Marisa Lagos. And today on The Breakdown, he was called Dr. Death in his opposition research days. And he's worked for some of the biggest names in democratic politics, Hillary Clinton, Jerry Brown, Kamala Harris, even Gavin Newsom.
0: The list goes on. That's right. A. Smith is here with us just days before Super Tuesday. We'll get His take on 2020, among other things. But first, we're going to turn to South Carolina, which is holding, as you've no doubt heard, its primary on Saturday. We're lucky enough to have Gavin Jackson on the line with us. He's a reporter for SCETV and South Carolina Public Radio. He's also host of South Carolina Lead. That is a podcast about politics in the Palmetto State. Gavin, good to have you with us. Welcome to The Breakdown. Hey, thanks for having me. So, first, give us a, a sense of uh, you know what's going on there. We obviously there was a debate this week. Um, you had Jim Clyburn, the congressman, endorsing Joe Biden. What's the what's the feel? What's your sense of the dynamic right now?
2: Yeah, we've had a very busy week on the hills of the Nevada uh, caucuses. Uh, everyone started really making their way back east after that. On Saturday, we saw. Uh, Joe Biden come to church on Sunday, which is a big thing to do. You definitely want to be in church on Sunday, but uh, especially in South Carolina, but only, he, only him and Pete Buttigieg actually were the only two candidates to go to church this week, which was kind of surprising. I know a lot of people have busy schedules and Bernie was making his way back too, but uh, it was just interesting to see those dynamics because we were expecting to see a big push this week. And as the week went on, we saw a lot of candidates in the Low Country, the Charleston area, which is which is uh, maybe some of your listeners are familiar with. Uh, definitely, all the organization, all the uh, activities happening down there, a lot of big events, a lot of big energy, especially with the CBS uh, debate on Tuesday night, which uh, was a slugfest, a bit. Yeah, <laughs> you know, totally. That's an absolutely, understatement. <laughs> it was, and and it's funny because I was talking to people. I was talking to our Democratic Party Chairman Trav Robertson. And, you know, just asking me, you know, what did we get from this debate? Did we get any clarity? And he's like, no, there's definitely no clarity. We'll have clarity on at, on Saturday at 7 p.m., <laughs> yeah, which yeah, the exactly. polls exactly. close here. Uh, and I think a lot of people feel the same way. A lot of people didn't really tune into that debate, or they did at least, and then Everyone was talking over each other. If you listen to my podcast, we kind of recreated it in the beginning with a few of my uh, reporter friends. And it it was the same thing. You know, everyone trying to get these jabs in. uh, They were trying to do what they did in Nevada and bring that energy. But yeah, I kind of wondered if people just just like like turned
0: it it off at some point. But let me, you know, it's interesting you bring up church because I hadn't thought about that. it, 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 how important is that aspect of a candidate, per their religious life? I mean, uh, I'm thinking Bernie Sanders is Jewish, Michael Bloomberg is Jewish. Does that like actually resonate with voters in South Carolina?
2: It's not necessarily you going there to worship per se. It's you want to go there to meet the voters. Again, you know, South Carolina being the most diverse state when it comes to the electorate being 60% black, uh, the Democratic Party. You want to go meet the voters where they are, and for a lot of people, that means going to church on Sunday, going to community events, holding small, intimate town halls, not necessarily big, large rallies, which are good to help you know uh, bring the enthusiasm. I was at a Bernie Sanders one the other day with 1,100 people in Charleston. So there, you do a little bit of both, but you definitely want to go and go to some of the off the beaten path places. You know, we have three big cities. We got Charleston, we got Columbia, and we have Greenville. So, yes, it's important to hit those big cities. But what matters for some of these voters is that these candidates turn out in these small rural areas. We saw a lot of that from Cory Booker and Kamala Harris. Uh, not so much with these guys, because they are focusing on really just getting the enthusiasm up, especially in this last stretch.
1: Well, and they're all, like, trying to, I think, to sort of juggle a million things, too, right? You see the schedules mm-hmm. coming into Super Tuesday. It's like, yeah. at the minute the polls close, they're going to be out of there. I'm curious, you know, we, um, we were just in Nevada last week. You know, Bernie Sanders did so well there, largely um, mm-hmm. because of people of color. I mean, Latinos especially there. But... Um, Young black voters seemed excited about him, too. I'm curious if there are generational differences you're seeing among who's excited about whom in South Carolina um, and kind of what that conversation has been like within the African-American community
2: yeah there's definitely excitement um for the younger voters and there is that generational divide as well like you said uh with you know the older more conservative moderate uh black democrats definitely more uh, aligned with joe biden that generation especially seeing him you know maybe they saw him in the senate i had one gentleman tell me that he was big on joe biden before barack obama uh but they all still associate very heavily with uh you know the obama administration and joe biden but you know when you look at you know nevada for example like again a very diverse state in its own right, but still uh, the black electorate, not as large, obviously, as South Carolina, uh, as we look at going into uh, Saturday's primary. But you do see for Bernie's uh, rallies, I was out at an event the other day, and you do have older voters there. It's predominantly a big white crowd, though, still. I mean, you do have uh, you know young black uh, voters there. You have a mix. But again, if out of the 1,100 people I saw in North Charleston, which is a very diverse area north of Charleston, it was still very much a white audience. And I'm not going to say everything's based off of, you know, crowd dynamics. And we have seen uh, Bernie with decent support in the black community in recent polling. But also, same with Tom Steyer, which I don't know. I mean, yeah, yeah. mean, to Tom California, Steyer. <laughs> Tom Steyer. I wanted to ask you about uh, that. He, I Cameron. think he's, he is kind of a part-time resident here now. His <laughs> wife is, at least for the time being. Well, it's
0: so funny because in in, in polls here in California, and he's from California, but Tom Steyer has languished in single digits here. And in one poll in South Carolina, I think he was in second place, cl- clearly seems to be eating into Joe Biden's support among African Americans. What do you think accounts for that?
2: So it's interesting because a lot of a lot of people kind of maybe didn't pay attention to the Tom Steyer story because we had so much going on with the early voting states, Iowa, New Hampshire, places that we saw all a lot of these other candidates really put all their firepower into, which is why we saw, you know, Mayor Pete do so well. We saw Bernie doing so well, uh, even Amy Klobuchar, you know, third in New Hampshire. Everyone put everything they had into those early voting states. And, it you know, we here in South Carolina, we're like, are you guys going to pay attention to us at some point? And who was paying attention was Tom Steyer. He's invested about $14.5 million in total ad spending, social media, TV ads. You know, people's kids know who Tom Steyer is because he pre-rolls on YouTube, and they're like, who is this guy? <laughs> so I think, I think he might have like a child army in a couple years if he wants to run again when these kids get old enough to vote. we are going to run Tom Steyer.
0: What is it, though, specifically about African-American voters, do you think, that uh, that folks find him appealing?
2: You know they like that he's a younger moderate. You know they they feel like he speaks to them that he's genuine. I talked to these people who are, you know, people that were also looking at Joe Biden, but then they're like, "Tom Steyer, he's here, he's in my community. He's talking about things that make sense to me. He talks a lot about environmental justice and how People who are living in uh, low-income areas—that's where a lot of these industries sometimes locate their businesses that are harmful to communities. You know, we talk about—he's very invested in looking at these communities that have bad infrastructure, like Denmark, South Carolina. You might have heard that during the debate. Uh, They like to—they try and compare Denmark, South Carolina to this small town to Flint, Michigan. It's nowhere near as bad as Flint, Michigan, but it just gives an example of the needs of inf- uh, rural infrastructure in these communities and he talks about that and he registers with people and he talks about, you know, affordable colleges and then graduating debt-free. He doesn't want to give away the farm like Bernie Sanders does. Like some people say that turns him off to Bernie Sanders, but He's registering with these people, and he's, again, much younger than Joe Biden, which is a relative term uh, in this presidential race right now. All
0: right. Gavin Jackson from South Carolina Public Radio. Check out his podcast. It's called South Carolina Lead. Am I pronouncing that right? It's L E D. You are. You are. OK, that's what I thought. Yeah, that's what I thought. But, you know, it could have been Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, check it out. We have some great stuff this week. All right. Gavin, thanks so much. Thanks, guys. All right, all right. We're going to take a short break right now. And when we return, we'll be joined by California political consultant Ace Smith. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio.
1: Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of The California Report magazine.
0: And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos, and today we're so happy to have with us a friendly face. He is a partner at one of California's premier political consulting firms known by its uh, first, the last names of each of its its members, SCRB, and the S in that name is with us today, Ace Smith. Welcome to the Breakdown.
3: Thank you. It's an honor. So we
0: want to begin by talking about how you got into politics. Your dad, Arlo Smith, was the DA here in San Francisco, and He got elected uh, defeating the D.A. who had prosecuted Dan White after the Milk and Moscone uh, murders. Uh, Talk about that and, and what impact that had on you as you were, you know, a young man at that time.
3: It had a tremendous impact. In fact, I was a junior at UC Berkeley and I took the quarter off to work on my dad's campaign. And. It's hard to go back. You maybe have to read maybe *Season of the Witch or something to get an idea of what those are. Which everyone <laughs> should do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Totally. Yes. And it was just, it was, it, it, there's two things about San Francisco politics which you appreciate that outsiders don't. First of all, it's like one of the toughest places to do politics anywhere in America. It's kind of like playing in the Dominican leagues before you play in the major <laughs> leagues. It actually may be harder. Uh, and, and Very personal. Yeah. And And the other thing is, I mean, that was a time when things were just absolutely unhinged here uh there there was a whole community was just it felt like they uh felt like a great injustice had been done two of our leaders had been assassinated uh it was just a fascinating moment
1: so you took a quarter off of college you were at uc berkeley i believe um and then eventually 10 years later you helped your dad um, when he ran for state attorney general and he lost that race to dan lundgren after election, it looked. I think on election night, like he was going to win. I believe that was sort of your like first, maybe intro to statewide politics and even opposition research. Can you talk about what you learned from that campaign? Because I've read that it really affected how you try to almost remove yourself emotionally from some of what you do.
3: That was really the most heartbreaking loss of, of my entire career. What it, and and that's one of those things. I backing up. I. I always felt a lot of empathy for, uh, say, Bill Clinton when I dealt with them later on because you don't understand what it's like when you're working for someone who you're married to, or who's your father, when they get grilled, attacked, and you, you frankly, you just feel like going over and, and screaming at the person.
1: Right. Like it's almost and harder to watch it's, it's than be the candidate. It's way harder.
3: And, and, you, and what I really learned from that race and, and what I've learned over time is that you – To be good, you have to be as dispassionate as you possibly can. You have to remove all emotion. But it must be so hard.
0: I mean, just thinking uh, about another close election, 2016, the presidential election, and then you were on the other side of a close election with Kamala Harris running for uh, attorney general. She beat Steve Cooley about two
3: weeks after Election Day. So, I mean, how how can you you really turn it off like that? You can't completely, but you can turn it off when you're making big decisions. You just have to have the most cold-hearted, Clear staring eyes when you look at spending money. And the Kamala Harris campaign is a classic example. People don't realize this, but we were outspent by some millions of dollars by the uh, moderate Republican DA of LA. He should have beat us. As a matter of fact, yeah, I covered that
1: race. I was going to bring it up.
3: Yeah, as a matter of fact, I, on my wall is a <laughs> is a is a clip of the from the San Francisco Chronicle that says Cooley beats Harris, um, which. Probably should happen. Was, <laughs> was true well, for I about think, 25 yeah, minutes.
1: Yeah, You know, you, somebody on your campaign transposed that onto the uh, Dewey Dr- beats Truman uh, yeah. photo. And yeah, and I, just full disclosure, I did not make that call. I said we, it was too early to call the race. So if, uh, going back, going back and to the end. You always have to
0: blame the headline
1: writers. Um, well, but... but So that race is a really good example of the way that you at first made your mark in politics. I mean, you were running that campaign, but you are known as an opposition researcher. Um, Any political reporter who's done statewide work has has likely seen some of the information that you've dug up on on folks. How did you get into that part of political consulting? Um, And it it seems like at first you liked that sort of behind the scenes role.
3: I, I really never did. And really? I, I got out of that as quickly as I could. Yeah. That, the real truth about the reason why I did opposition research, and people think it's way more evil than it really is. It's, it's actually, I always think it's pretty mundane usually, and it's doing kind of basic due diligence that you would do if you were, you know, setting up a business or anything else. But that aside, uh, I got into it because I, I've been doing politics in California, and I realized one day uh, that. I could do all the politics I wanted in California, and I would never meet any of the people who were the movers and shakers and actually doing politics in America if I stayed in, because California just completely walled off. I mean, we live in the state where, yeah, we we mass movements, you know, like counterculture revolution, regular revolution come from here, but all the news and all that other stuff goes east to west. And so I actually got on a plane one day with a friend and went back to D.C., and I introduced myself to the political director of the Democratic uh, Congressional Campaign Committee, a young man named Rahm Emanuel. (laughs) And I I said, look, you, you guys don't know how to do this. I do. Why don't you give me a race anywhere in America, and I'll go do it. And if you like what I do, I'll do a bunch of races for you.
1: What is it, do you think, because you're sort of pretty well known for understanding the, the global picture of an election, right? Um, talk about your methods. Like, what what does that mean? What are you looking at when we talk about data? How much of it is data? How much of it is just a feeling? Like, tell us your secrets, Ace. It,
3: it, no secrets here. It's actually very, very simple. And and this the simplicity of it is the beauty of it. But it's what gets messed up all the time, which is... When you're going to go win an election, you just have to ask yourself a very simple question. How many votes do I need to get and where am I, I going to get them from? And then you have to go back and reverse engineer the whole thing. Now, that sounds incredibly simple, but, but in a state like California where you can and, – and one of the reasons why there's a lot of lazy politics in America is a lot of races are played out in places where you can literally do everything. Right. You don't have to go triage and you don't have to go say, I'm going to put all my money on this one thing uh, because you can literally do everything from soup to nuts, from field to to communications, to pre- you name it. And, and you won't go wrong. But in California, you're always forced to you're almost like in a civil war triage ward and you're forced to make really hard decisions. And so. If and that's because it's
1: so expensive and huge. It's so
3: expensive. And, and so you really are always in the position of saying, OK, I need to get this many votes. How exactly do I, in the most surgical way, do that with very limited resources that are never, in any circumstances, ever going to be able to cover the waterfront?
0: Well, and there is sort of an old adage that if you're not on TV in California, you can't win. Uh, but it sounds like you're saying maybe the get out the vote, the field operation is really what wins or loses elections. you got to go find those people and get them out to the, to the ballot box.
3: The answer is sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. And, and, and you just have to there's a lot of races where you'll look at the race in California and you'll say, um, I can't afford to do field here. I'm just going to have to do mass media. And the other thing that happens when uh, you know, kind of folks from outside California try and come in here and be successful is you can't do field, generally speaking, unless you're talking about a local race, in the same way that you do it in all these other states and all these other parts of America. Because, What's the difference? Well, the difference is you, you have to – essentially hit such big numbers to move numbers that you you have to be in the mass production business. So you can't just go out and knock on 10,000 doors and be happy. You have to be talking to a million people and you have to be talking to repeatedly. You have to be modeling it. You have to know how to move it. You have to know how to message it. But you have to be doing such a high volume that you can't do it with the kind of like the cottage industry type methods that are used.
1: So you brought up the 2010 race against Steve Cooley, which Kamala Harris did win, Um, and you also ran her uh, 2016 successful U.S. Senate run. Um, Your team was involved in her presidential run this year. She, you know, I think has been a very good candidate in a lot of ways. I'm curious what your read is on, like, why she didn't catch fire.
3: I don't think it was the right time. And I think that, look at the Democratic field, every candidate of color was eliminated Honestly, even before the the people had started tuning into the debates, why do you think that was yeah, because I think this was one of these elections where people weren't voting their hearts they were they were and to use a a spousal analogy um, which goes both ways these days, thank goodness uh, people were kind of looking to get married to someone who was going to help with the mortgage, who was going to uh, you know be able to buy groceries and in, in this case, who had the best chance to beat Trump. Right. And they were not making decisions based like they did, for instance, with with President Obama. They were not making a decision based on their heart.
0: Do you think, though, that I mean, we're seeing Bernie Sanders do very well uh, at this point, and yet a lot of people feel he's not the strongest candidate. I mean, do you, are, is that just conventional wisdom waiting to be
3: proved wrong against Trump? Yeah, that's completely conventional wisdom waiting to be proved wrong. Say more. Well, <laughs> I, I the thing you have to look at everyone's strengths and weaknesses. His yes, he does have some weaknesses which we can point out, but his strength is that that he actually, like Trump, can actually reach voters in the middle of the country who are feeling just completely dealt out, and and I'm so tired of hearing, uh, Democrats, consultants and, and and pundits, talk about how if we just say things differently and more cleverly, to these folks that we'll get them back. That's nonsense. We're the way you actually start start making a you know, a real movement is by going in there and and, and I look he's been a trailblazer in this and actually putting policies forward that actually change people's lives and affects people's lives. It's not just a matter of having cute talking points.
0: If you're just joining us, I'm Scott Schaefer, and I'm here with Marisa Lagos, and we're talking today with veteran Democratic campaign consultant, Ace Smith. He ran governor's races for Jerry Brown and Gavin Newsom, also helped with both Hillary Clinton and Kamala Harris's presidential runs. You know, Ace, there's... um, there's always been this debate in this presidential season about uh, what's the best way to win—to have like somebody to to win back those voters, the Trump Obama Trump voters, or to have somebody on the ballot who's going to turn out minorities and young people. You're saying, I think, that Bernie Sanders can do both. I
3: think he possibly can. Yes, uh, there's no question, and and I think there's other candidates who can too, maybe in slightly different ways. But but don't write Bernie off just because uh, he's not popular. With, with kind of like the party. The insiders, yeah. yeah. So you think it would be well, a big
0: mistake to have a brokered convention and take it away from him? That seems to be the conversation these days. Uh, you
3: know, we're so far away from there. That's yeah. a silly conversation, honestly.
1: Well, let's talk about what we're close to, which is Super Tuesday. We heard at the top South Carolina uh, public radio reporter Gavin Jackson weigh in. Uh, you helped or ran Hillary's campaign in California in 2016 against Bernie Sanders at that point. What similarities, differences do you see with this year's primary? I mean, clearly it's a much more crowded field. Um, do you expect a different electorate? Do you think that people are voting differently, to your point oh, about they, head versus heart?
3: You absolutely. Know? And, and this is a historic election. I mean, we haven't had an election in California like this uh, of such magnitude and meaning since 1968. I mean, that's what this is. And wh- one of the beautiful things is we moved our primary early permanently. So we're going to be significant this time, and I think we'll be even more significant next time. Uh, the thing that's fascinating watching the ballots come in, though, to the kind of the heart-head question, yeah. is they are significantly lagging the turn-in from four years ago. And what I mean, people expected, right? We we
1: talked on this air with yeah. Paul Mitchell a few weeks ago. He thought, you know, a third of ballots would be in by now. It's no. something like 15%.
3: I never thought that. It uh, it was it was, It's 16 as of today and this time 4 years ago it was 23 and what that says it just it's so obvious people are holding on to their ballots waiting to see because they want to cast them for in a meaningful way for someone who has a chance of Getting delegates in this case.
0: We've had you know some high-profile endorsements made. London Breed, the mayor here, uh, endorsed Michael Bloomberg, as did Sam Liccardo in San Jose. But you know some prominent people have not endorsed, including a couple of your former three, actually, of your uh, <laughs> you know, clients. Uh, Gavin Newsom, huh? the governor, has not endorsed. Kamala Harris has not yet endorsed. Uh, Jerry Brown hasn't endorsed. What do you what do you make of that? Is that just smart
3: politics on their part? Like, don't get. It does it
1: matter? I, yeah, I and think does it matter? How much yeah. Endorsements matter.
3: It matters tremendously. Um, in, in this, this is a kind of uniquely splintered small field where and, – and think about it this way. If you're a candidate like Elizabeth Warren is kind of hovering around 12.5 percent. So the difference between having no delegates and actually having delegates is 2.5 points. So if she gets some momentum going into election day, that's huge.
1: So, so why do you think these big names? Because it seems to me, <laughs> oh, I mean, not, And you don't have to talk about anyone specific, but if you look at the endorsement lists, which I was trying to do yeah. today, it's a very long list in most cases of people that nobody's heard of, quite frankly, unless yeah. they live in the community those people are from. Yeah,
3: I, I, I really think it's one of these things where uh, the the bigger endorsers are as confused as everyone else. <laughs> I think it's just that simple. Really, you think they're conflicted? Yeah. And
0: and also, would it be bad politics at this point to get in?
3: Oh, I don't know about that. But if you were betting, I wouldn't bet on it. Yeah.
1: One other thing before we turn. I know we want to talk about um, a couple other things besides the election. But I'm I'm just curious if you think if if you have any concerns because you're good at the math here. There, there's been talk that the turnout in the early states hasn't been as high as it might have been that people expected coming out of 2018. Does that concern you at all for November? Or is that like a completely different calculation once we get to our general?
3: I think it's a fully different calculation. And I think we're going to have historic turnout in, in November.
0: Let's talk about some personal stuff. Your wife Laura, uh, who I met many, many years ago working on a campaign, we were both working on campaigns. Uh, she, I think, is a political fundraiser among other things. Uh, t- talk about what, you know wh- how you met, maybe, and yeah, because yeah, you both work in the in the in the world of
3: politics. She has not done political fundraising for a long time. She runs a wonderful organization called Beyond Differences, which the two of you started. Yes, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. yes, and and um, but I mean, we were in office romance in City Hall and uh, here we are 30-some years later and as madly in love as ever.
1: In San Francisco? or
3: In San Francisco. Ah,
1: lovely. Um, You guys had two children. Um, I know your son just had a child. Congratulations. And your daughter Lily um, passed away. She had Apert syndrome which causes uh, cranial facial anomalies and you guys started Beyond Differences um, really because of her. Can you talk a little bit about Why this program? Because it's really about social isolation and it's really um, like child-led, right? Teenage-led.
3: It is. And it's something she was uh, affected by, and we didn't even have a word for it, uh, by social isolation, which is basically going to school and being invisible. And uh, it's an interesting story. The organization started because uh, a bunch of kids who went to school with her approached us and said, we'd like to do something about this. And so wow. uh, more than anything, uh, Laura really ran with it, and we realized it was an appetite. And, you know, my goodness, this little organization, Beyond Differences, is now in almost a third of the schools in America, middle schools in America, and has the, you know, profoundly good problem of having uh, literally just a- almost more demand than they can meet.
1: And what are they doing?
3: Well, what they do is they do these wraparound programs in, in all schools and in we're in deep red states as well as blue states and i'm happy to say where we like one of our national programs which you may have heard of is called no one eats alone and it's it's a day where you invite uh, people you don't normally sit with to sit together and but then there's a week worth of lesson plans that goes around it to really kind of deal with all these questions of of connectedness and and how do you actually build communities and but the the fundamental proposition is um, I grew up in an era when it was kind of granted that middle school was going to be miserable, <laughs> and it was just going—you know—you just have to get through it. And we don't believe that to be true. We don't believe it has to be like that. Do you hear from the
0: the young folks that you know that social media has really contributed to that isolation?
3: So, somewhat, there's there's no question. And wh- what I think it makes hard for young people that 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 people of my generation didn't face was if you are having a hard time in school it literally follows you home and and that's what's kind of what's so insidious about it yeah before we, we end yeah i we gotta
1: ask because you wrote this incredible book in all your free time i don't know when you did this ace um about uh black baseball pitcher satchel page he was a legend uh 20s and 30s uh, black baseball player briefly tell us about the book and just like how how did that become the book you wrote
3: <laughs> it was quite by accident. I was actually I had run Antonio Villaraigosa's race for mayor, and in 2005, and I was really tired and was actually just kind of loafing around in the summer of 2005. And my office was in North Beach. And I used to go to see Lights Book, you know, probably twice or three times a week and buy books. And I happened to buy this one book that had this wonderful story about Satchel Paige in this uh, series he played Dominican Republic, and I was mesmerized by it, and I wondered if it was true. And so I one weekend went down to the um, UC Santa Barbara Library where they had the microfiche of the Dominican newspapers in Spanish. And I read through it all, and I realized that not only it was true, but the story was more fascinating than anyone had ever told it. So I decided to write the book.
1: And mm. tell us what it's called.
3: It's called The Pitcher and the Dictator. All right. Check and, it out, folks. And <laughs> one last quick question. You're a piano player, right? A very bad one. Very bad you. one? That's
0: <laughs> not what I've heard. Yes. You have a favorite... Uh, kind of genre that you play
3: i play a little bit of everything but my favorite uh composer that i play a lot of is scarlatti all right hey right. smith thank you so much man. <laughs> renaissance man should <laughs> have brought you. a
0: keyboard yeah, right. thanks so much for coming in really a pleasure thank you and that's it for this edition of political breakdown it's a production of kqed public radio and by the way Maurice and i will be back on the air election night with results and analysis assuming we have results. i'm already
1: caffeinating up that For tonight, our producers, Guy KQ KQED's team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Lindley, Vinnie Tong, Jonathan Blakely, and Julie Kane. I am Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at MLagos. And
0: I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. We'll see you next time, everybody. Don't forget to vote.
1: Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures. Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book.